1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. One 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 one. Mary had a little lamb. One two three four five six seven eight nine ten. Mary had a little lamb. Little lamb. Little lamb. Mary had a little lamb's fleece. Why is no? Hello, I'm Chloe Veltman, and this is Voicebox. It's great to be here with you once again. The human voice is a delicate instrument. When problems arise, the outcomes can seriously hamper people's lives. The strained and pained voices we just heard all belong to individuals from a variety of backgrounds whose inability to speak had gotten so severe that it was affecting everything, from their ability to land new clients to their relationships with their grandchildren. Thankfully, help is at hand. The state of today's vocal health care industry in the US makes it possible for these people to receive the care they need to help them get their voices back on track once again. From stroboscopies of the vocal folds to laryngeal transplants, the field of vocal health care is full of newfangled sounding science, but this stuff didn't just appear overnight. It progressed over centuries of careful research and discovery. On this evening's show, we're going to explore the evolution of vocal health care and talk about where the field is at today. To guide us on our journey through time, I'm lucky to be joined in the studio by Dr. Christoph Izdebski. Dr. Izdebski, an internationally recognised scientist, clinician and a voice speech pathologist, is the founder and chairman of the Pacific Voice and Speech Foundation, a non-profit organisation dedicated to voice and speech dysfunction. He's also a co-founder of the World Voice Consortium, an international body of individuals and institutions dedicated to the study and care of the human voice. Thanks for joining me, Christoph. Thank you for having me over. I thought we could start our journey into the past with a consideration of why the field of vocal health care exists at all and how it impacts people's lives. I culled the vocal samples we heard at the top of the show from audio recordings that you kindly sent me, Christoph, of your recent work with a few different patients. When we hear your conversations with some of these people, it becomes very clear why vocal health care is so important. Let's hear from one of these patients now. So you have a, a cancer of lungs, and it affects many parts of your body, among other things, affected your voice. How do you feel as a voice a patient? What, how does it affect your life, your social life and your private life? Well, I feel invisible. I can't stick up for myself. Um, I feel helpless, and now I'm... My kids are visiting, my grandkids are visiting me for the first time in six months. And they're sort of ignoring me. And I can't read them stories. And I can't supervise them because if they're two feet away, they don't hear what I'm saying. Can you be conversing in a restaurant or in a car? No, I just um, basically gave up on that. Can you sing? No, and I usually like to. And you used to sing in the past? Yes, I was in a singing class. Okay. Yeah. We'll get it back for you. Thank you. My guest on tonight's show about the evolution of vocal health care and its state today is voice speech pathologist Dr. Christoph Izdebski. I'm Chloe Veltman. Christoph, please can you tell us more about this patient we just heard? Um, How did you go about helping her? This patient appeared in my office under referral from a physician here in San Francisco a week, two weeks ago, a week and a half actually ago. 
and um, uh, be, she has uh, metastasis from lung cancer mm-hmm. to many organs of her body, including uh, vocal cords, a vocal fold, and uh, that caused one of her vo- vocal fold to be paralyzed. Mm-hmm. So when you have a paralyzed vocal fold, you can't close the cords together, so it's like a leaky faucet or a door with a draft, so the air flows through. You cannot uh, start to vibrate the cords correctly. So voice is very short duration. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no power. There is no um, uh, pitch or loudness control. It sounds so painful as well. You know, actually, it is slightly painful because uh, uh, these patients uh, recruit other muscles to push air through, mm-hmm. and specifically uh, strap muscles in the neck that mm-hmm. supports. Uh, the head, so they feel discomfort. They feel quite much discomfort in the neck when they talk. Uh-huh. So what what have you been doing to work with this patient? So uh, the way we can propose treatment for these patients is based on examination. Mm. And examination is crucial of finding what step to do next. Uh, uh, in certain of uh, these cancer patients with metastasis, they may have very little time left in life, so they want to have a fast result. And the fast results sometimes are not necessarily the best one because they require additional surgical procedures, and these mm-hmm. people sometimes had enough of, of procedures. If the physiology uh, shows that they can be treated through therapeutical means by self-repairing or physiological repair, uh, then they also will achieve very good and voices. And sometimes this, this, this gain can come fast, very fast as well. I actually happened to see this patient yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the last seven days through therapy that she did every day at home, mm-hmm. uh, she improved uh, significantly to the point wow. that she's actually going to some kind of reunion to Boston next week and uh, we decided that we'll postpone any possibilities of additional treatment uh, until she returns from her trip. So it's it's extremely fascinating and it's also extremely rewarding not only to the patients but to me as a clinician that we can yeah. do something uh, that rapidly and very fast. Yeah, and there's a clear need there. It's yeah. a clear need and you know the faster if there's if injury occurs uh, to the vocal cords like any other organ uh, the faster inter- intervention is introduced the more likely there's something uh, in the brain plasticity that will take over and help Mm -hmm. uh, to reorganize the system so that we don't need to uh, wait for surgical procedures, surgical reports. Well, vocal problems can disrupt people's professional lives as much as their personal ones. Here are a couple of audio samples from patients in Dr. Izdebski's practice talking about how their voice issues affect their work. We'll hear first from a marketer and then from a lawyer. Go from low pitch to high pitch, going. Ooh. <laughs> One more time. Ooh. How long do you have this voice problem? At least a year. And how does this affect your life? Um, it affects my work because I do marketing and I talk to people every day. And can you work with your voice or is it difficult? Time? It's very difficult. Do you get tired, fatigued? Um, I get stressed out because um, it is my job and I get paid to talk to people. Um, I do get tired of straining my voice, trying to get people to hear me. <laughs> So you are a lawyer and you experienced voice problem. How does voice problem affect your professional or social life as a lawyer or uh, just as a social being? Um, well, it's been very limiting in the past few months where I've had long periods of not being able to use my voice at all, which has really prohibited me from being able to set up really any client meetings except for the ones that were absolutely necessary. Um, and then it's very isolating to not have a voice. 
If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, Public Radio's weekly series about the human voice. Voicebox is also available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. To find out more about our series, including how to make a much-needed donation to support our project, which is independently produced and non-profit, please visit voicebox-media.org. Donating to Voicebox is easy. Just click our online PayPal link. Tonight's show is devoted to an exploration of the evolution of the vocal healthcare arena. I'm chatting with Christoph Izdebski, a scientist, clinician and voice speech pathologist. Dr Izdebski is the founder and chairman of the Pacific Voice and Speech Foundation. So those two voice clips we heard from a marketer and lawyer whom you recently worked with, Christoph, clearly demonstrate how voice problems can impede people's professional lives. Can you tell us briefly about these two cases and, and how you treated these people? The first case of the marketer is simply from voice overuse and abuse of the voice. To uh, cure her or to, te- to, to restore her voice to normalcy, first we need to figure out if voice rest mm-hmm. will do anything uh, useful for her. And in this person, uh, in, in a way, it is acute voice rest. So basically mm-hmm. these people have to limit their output to, uh, to minimum. They per- sort of should, in a way, say on the fire and otherwise be very quiet. So if they mm-hmm. see something burning, they should you know, react to it. Otherwise, it should be very quiet. So that means they also should not laugh mm-hmm. or cry. So if they sit on voice stress and watch funny movies and laugh, that's also making sound. <laughs> and if they watch something like soap operas in which they're going to cry, they also is making sound. Sure. So sound should be isolated. And if this doesn't help, then unfortunately in that condition, they have to go through the medical procedures, surgical procedures, to uh, clean the structures, the vocal folds, and sometimes if they are bleeding, blood vessels, you have to cauterize those blood vessels and so on. Mm. So it takes a very, very long time. And the recovery to normal voice in such case could be maybe six to seven to eight months, or maybe longer. That's a lot of time to not be working. A lot of time to be working, a lot of time to really pay attention how you speak. Mm. So because if they go back to uh, uh, the same job, and without learning how to speak better, they're just going to be going back to the same problem mm-hmm. and recreate the problem mm-hmm. pretty soon. Mm-hmm. So it's a very social, it's a social phenomenon as well, not only uh, physical illness, but also a social phenomenon. So there's second aspect of isolation, uh, loss of income, and uh, you know usage of uh, medical treatment, medications, and, and other, asp- uh, mm-hmm. other things that, that are invasive into, mm-hmm. into sort of behavior. Do you want to say anything about the lawyer specifically? Well, well? yes. And interesting, you know, uh, the voice of lawyers, specifically trial lawyers, is very crucial in a trial setting. Mm-hmm. This lawyer uh, is now in a process of almost complete recovery of her mm-hmm. voice. And it went through therapy. There's no uh, surgical or medical intervention. Uh, through reorganization of how an individual uses uh, voice. Mm-hmm. Voice is produced by the smallest instrument in the uh, in the world. In fact, if you look at the weight of the vocal folds, it's about three grams. So it mm-hmm. weighs approximately as much as one non-fat meringue from Trader Joe. <laughs> uh, and yet this instrument can produce an enormous array of sounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, so understanding how this instrument works is actually very good, and particularly for people who have to use voice uh, for professional reasons. Well, let's get a little bit into talking about the history here. You've described, we've so far talked about three different cases and uh, how you treat these people right now. And a lot of it involves therapeutic approaches, um, practicing exercises, vocal rest, things like this. 
How does your approach today compare to perhaps how the you or, or other other people, your peers, would have approached these problems twenty years ago, for example, or a hundred years ago? Mm-hmm. It's a very, a very great and interesting question because it fits into philosophy of how medicine developed. So, uh, voice care is actually a relatively new phenomena in the way we understand voice care now. In the United States, it sort of started in the mid, uh, early 70s and developed into subspecialty, both in laryngology and in uh, speech pathology. But if you go back historically, um, the first mentions of something happening with voice go back to um, Egyptian cultures. You know, there are actually some uh, hieroglyphic pic- uh, pictures in which you can see an individual kneeling in front of another and pointing some sharp instrument at the area of the neck. So we don't know if this is actually uh, tracheotomy or is it something that they are pointing that the voice comes out of there. Mm-hmm. Or a human sacrifice. Perhaps. Or human sacrifice, yes. <laughs> well, you know, that would be nice. Actually, some, some people uh, f- could be sacrificed. <laughs> <laughs> for whatever reasons. But the first people to specify sort of like what voice really was and how voice was produced goes all the way to um, period, maybe a little bit first, second century after Christ and the Domini. And that is particular to Galen, uh, who was a Turkish-Greek uh, work in Italy, and he developed his first theories of where and how voice can be used, where does it come from and how it can be treated. Uh, but it took very, very long time to progress somewhere where we are. Essentially, this progression began with with observations of a singing teacher, uh, Garcia, Mm -hmm. uh, who using dental mirror, walking somewhere in a park in London, and using another mirror to reflect the sun rays, observed his own vocal folds. But he could only see them in opening and closure because they're too fast to mm-hmm. vibrate. So as we speak right now, uh, there's a probably a, a, almost an octave difference between you and my voice. Mm-hmm. So my voice will vibrate right this moment about 130, 140 times per second. Mm-hmm. And you are maybe about 210 or about 200. So 200 vibrations per second cannot be seen with human eye. Right. So there are certain instrumentations that came into play and this instrumentation allowed a more clear understanding of how voice is produced. So from that point of view, uh, treatment developed and progressed to something what is right now modern treatment. The question that you ask, how did it was 20 years ago, 100 years ago, a lot of things have changed. Uh, because medicine has changed in a certain way. Originally, uh, the, the beginning of medicine was all based on uh, God punishment. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the person who healed was connected to God, mm-hmm. and, uh, and therefore that person was sort of metaphysical. There's nothing there. From about uh, Renaissance time, uh, things changed uh, uh, because people started to think. And today we are... Uh, not so much metaphysical. Also, people think that healers are still gods. But today we look into more on um, evidence-based uh, uh, treatment. So today with voice care, we need to figure out immediately what is going to be most efficacious for mm-hmm. the given individual, least costly and least invasive. Uh, so therapies progressed a lot. In originally, therapy was uh, maybe just... Uh, putting uh, a patient on voice rest, maybe put, maybe having some massages or something like mm-hmm. that. But voice was misunderstood because voice is not just 
one or two tones, depending on who you are. If you are an operatic singer and if you miss one key in your uh, instrument, you can't perform. Mm-hmm. If you are just a talker without uh, need to uh, elevate your voice, then you can maybe talk within a certain frequency. And then when you go to upper frequencies, one of those examples was shown, then your voice deteriorates. Good therapist, a voice therapist, can actually camouflage growth or progression of the disease. So it's, it's very crucial that we don't go into one modality for treatment because although we can help temporarily on a long-term basis, it can become worse. So voice became a team multi-specialty uh, treatment uh, sort of um, uh, genre or, and in which the ultimate uh, uh, responsibility lies upon the referring physician. And typically these referring physicians are laryngologists, but sometimes neurologists, primary care physicians, and so on and so on. So there's no clear cut what and how a patient has to be treated until we go through the diagnostic tests, diagnostic regimen, and then we decide what treatment to give. And the idea is always to give treatment that is least invasive, something that does not require anesthesia, something that does not require surgical procedure, if this is possible. If it's not possible, then therapy alone is not going to work. But therapy works quite often well after surgical procedure. So it's almost similar if you have a broken leg, you have a cast, they take the cast off and say, run, you're going to fall again because your leg is not working very well. Mm -hmm. You need to go through physical therapy. So therapy for voice is very crucial in uh, post-surgical cases, but can be also very crucial in pre-surgical cases because you don't sometimes don't need to have surgery uh, for the voice if if therapy is the uh, mechanism that will cure. Don Fatale from Verdi's Don Carlo, as performed by the German contralto Sigrid Onegin. Onegin was a pupil of the famous Spanish baritone and vocal pedagogue Manuel Garcia, who was known not just for teaching some of the 19th century opera world's most celebrated stars, but also for bringing about important innovations in the then nascent field of vocal health care. The evolution of vocal health is the subject of tonight's Voice Box show with special guest voice speech pathologist Dr. Christoph Istebski. Visit voicebox-media.org for detailed playlist information and other details that you might like to know about our project. So Manuel Garcia, uh, Christoph, you mentioned him earlier on. He seems like a really interesting character. Um, I'd love it if you could tell us a bit more about his contributions to the field of vocal health. So I understand that he... 
uh, got himself in vocal trouble mm-hmm. uh, when he was in New York City. As a singer. Uh, as mean. a singer. Mm-hmm. With his dad pushed him to do something, and, and he became, uh, he actually lost his voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he actually never performed since that uh, well. Uh, and the reason, uh, maybe that's the reason he got into um, trying to figure out how voice works, because he wanted to prevent others mm-hmm. from having vocal injuries. So uh, he, through ingenious thinking, uh, figured out that he, he wants to f- see what it is, what is that instrument, what mm-hmm. is this part of the body that can make these incredible sounds uh, across the spectrum in these various qualities and frequencies and intensities. So he stuck the uh, dental mirror mm-hmm. uh, in his mouth, and then he had another mirror in the other hand and looked through uh, lights, uh, light reflecting from the sun, and he saw something, and this that something were, were the vocal folds. He actually, if I misquote him, please do forgive me, but he said what he saw uh, put him in a stage of, um, of uh, bewilderness or something mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this was actually the first observation of how vocal cords are acting, how they're performing, what is the mm-hmm. uh, act, what they actually do. And um, so he from that point on, can be treated as the uh, first investigator or the first physiologist mm-hmm. of the voice. And eventually, I, I don't remember exactly the date, 1845 or something like this, he wrote a treatise that became a hit in the French Academy, Science Academy. And it became a standard sort of text of how and what to do mm-hmm. with voice and how to look at voice. Mm-hmm. So his contribution is f- fundamental because from that point on, laryngoscopy or mm-hmm. visualization of the vocal folds uh, became a standard technology. Try singing it. I'm sorry. What songs do you know? Sing it. Then she wouldn't feed me far, far away. Took my parents three years to notice. As you, as you can imagine, caused some stomach problems. Still. That was a scene from the 2010 movie The King's Speech. Um, it was based on a true story. The movie centres on how Britain's King George VI works with the maverick Australian speech therapist Lionel Logue to help him overcome a debilitating speech impediment. The film is interesting because of the way in which it shows how voice problems were perceived and tackled back at that time. Christoph, what was interesting or different about the way in which Lionel Logue approached vocal health care in comparison to the status quo back then in terms of how vocal pro problems were treated in the early part of the 20th century? First of all, he promised him to cure him. Mm-hmm. And today, um, because of ethics, we cannot make these promises to uh-huh. anybody. So it's oh. very important to say, because if you promise I'm going to cure you, I'm going to do something, then you hook these people. Mm-hmm. So uh, from ethical point of view, uh, we say we're going to do the best mm-hmm. and the least harmful, but we cannot cure you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's good about this film is that it was a tremendous publicity for right. uh to, for general public to understand that communication disorders, speech disorders, voice disorders can affect anybody mm-hmm. and can be completely devastating and can actually isolate an individual. What's wrong with the movie is that uh, 
they blamed stuttering on behavior of his parents. So this uh. was sort of like a reaction to psychological abuse of his parents. It's sort of very Freudian. It is, point. and yes, absolutely. And 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 there is nothing to do with it. We still do not know really what uh-huh. stuttering is, but there's some evidence. There's actually some even genetic predisposition, chromosomal uh, issues, some markers in 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 the system, in genetic system that can cause stuttering. You're British, so there in England there are two expressions: stammering versus stuttering. Mm-hmm. And uh, so some British high class individual, in, in the they sort of talk like that. Really. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hesitate a little bit before they say things. Mm-hmm. Correct? Am I right? That, that's to stammer. That's to stammer. That's mm-hmm. correct. And so this could be also sometimes an expression of of, of class, of class or, yeah. or, or a genre, or really sort of a style of talking. I actually listened to King George the Sixth speech mm-hmm. uh, in of September 3rd, I think it was, 1939, when he mm-hmm. gave the speech right after the beginning of World War II. Um, and the recording that I saw was on uh, uh, on um, uh, on disc. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they edited this recording or not, but actually in his speech, there were no moments of stuttering. There's just hesitations mm-hmm. of maybe so natural pauses that were introduced not in natural breaks. Typically, we take a pause that corresponds to breathing patterns. So you ask how treatment would differ. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, one good thing he did, he told him to stop smoking. Mm-hmm. That was a good stuff. So we'll do the same stuff. Uh-huh. But the other thing is that we will not roll anybody on the floor mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we will not do these, these sort of a traumatic uh, yeah. behavioral uh, modifications. Stutterers or fluency disorder patients, we like to call them now, mm-hmm. uh, can be treated in many different ways. Can be treated through therapy, sometimes through medications, sometimes actually through injections. We have tried uh, to do even injection of botulinum toxin into some st- of the stutterers, depending mm-hmm. or, or the, the fluency disorder patients. Is that Botox? Yes, mm-hmm. Botox. And depending on depending on how and what what is the hub of the of the stuttering, so. If you divide stutters into oral stutters versus laryngeal stutters, then there are different terminology, different way you can treat these patients. Often, people wonder why a stutter can sing, mm-hmm. actually com- completely normally, mm-hmm. and they cannot uh, talk, even if they've produced the same sentence. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference? Well. Uh, it's still a mystery, but most of the time we think that it has to do with how voice goes to different uh, chip in the brain mm-hmm. and how this different chip controls the output. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a coordination pattern. Mm-hmm. And also when you sing something, it's learned, completely mm-hmm. learned. So you don't think, you don't generate this, mm-hmm. you just repeat. So. The detachment from thought processing uh, to repetition is something that is often a major problem in oral stutterers. So what you've just been telling me now is this sort of information that was this available to Lionel Logue back when he was treating the king or is this all stuff that has come to light, uh, you know, in the last... 50 or 20 or however many years. It's all new. New stuff. It's okay. New stuff. So Lionel Logue was operating in a, from a different set of premises. From what you've told me, it sounds like vocal healthcare came into its own as a field in the post-World War two years, Christoph. What happened at that time to take the field to new heights? Technology. 
Mm-hmm. Technology is a primary driver uh, in modern voice care. Technology encompasses not only uh, visualization but also acoustics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what, vo- what 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 is voice? What it really is? Voice is a product of an instrument, product of some motion. Okay, so it, once voice leaves the body, it is in the air. This is what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're putting out some signals, and you get, we t- capture this. It's going to be sent, you know, for podcasting or whatever way you're going to broadcast this. So once this air moves, it, it it becomes an acoustic signal, acoustic wave. We can then look at this acoustic wave, and we can analyze this acoustic wave. So the analysis of the wave uh, can uh, sort of give us a retrospect. So we like inverse filtering. We can we can from the analysis figure out what was the instrument that produces this particular sound. And if the sound is deviant from standards or from norm, we we can then try to depict what part of this instrument was responsible. So acoustic analysis were very, very crucial to determine what is the status of the voice at the given time Mm -hmm. and how this can change based on intervention or treatment or over growth of the disease or process that that, that, that causes dysphonia or voice problem in an individual. Second, uh, second technology that mm-hmm. became very, very crucial is visualization. Mm. So visualization uh, of the vocal cords uh, is difficult because they're sitting inside. You're looking mm-hmm. at me, I'm looking at you. We cannot see the vocal cords. Mm-hmm. In women, we see not even Adam's apple. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't see this prominence. So patients who undergo gender reassignment uh, from male to female, uh, they undergo surgical procedure to shave that Adam's apple so they when you look at them you don't even see that this is a male neck mm. sometimes this actually causes a lot of problems so how we look inside we have to you know, we have to look through something so uh, since acoustic waves as one way of looking but it's not direct visualization then we can look through optical aspects mm-hmm. so optical aspects with advent of fiber optics mm-hmm. you can insert fiber optic device through the nose and you can look down into vocal cords and, and you can see how they work mm-hmm. and then stroboscopy came and mm-hmm. the stroboscopy is the uh, illumination of object that move very fast yeah. with the light with stroboscopic light so and the light is uh, flashing a little bit below a little bit above the frequencies that things are produced so you can slow and speed down uh, uh, the vibration and so you can be very precise on, on how uh, and what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Stroboscopy now becomes uh, digital and it's in color so you can actually look at the dermatology of the vocal cords. But quite often the visual aspect of a vocal cord does not match the acoustic output. Oh. So it's there's a discongruence between what you see and what you hear. Right. And it's very crucial that not one that one technology is not detrimental in making a final diagnosis, that you have to put these things together. Because often there are disorders that do not manifest themselves at all with surface changes whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So the surface changes uh if you see something on the vocal cords, you can say, well, what is it? And then you can take a biopsy of this and can figure out what it is. But if you have a voice problem that doesn't manifest any physiological uh, manifestation on the surface, mm-hmm. then people usually thought about it as, oh, that's a psychiatric problem. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to you know Austrian, Viennese, uh, Freudian approach. Uh, but that is non-reality. This, mm-hmm. is, this goes back to uh, f- you know, sort of a mis- mystical uh, approach and, and mm-hmm. looking at voice through a um, sort of a, you know, pre-medieval time. Uh, 
Uh, so everything that we do in a body has certain physiological explanations. And actually, there's a disorder called spasmodic dysphonia uh, that for 110 years was considered a psychiatric case. Because when you look at the vocal cords, they're normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were actually the first group that did something about it. It was very lucky. And we mm-hmm. had a very grateful patient who had 17 years of psychiatric therapy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was called hysterical dysphonia because it was in a woman. So women can be hysterical. Men cannot be hysterical. Correct? Because mm. men can be homosexually suppressed and therefore can have a similar voice problem because the sphincter muscles won't, won't work. But, uh, s- but so this particular person was uh, treated through uh, psychotherapy for mm. many, many years and never worked. Mm-hmm. So uh, Dr. Dido, as you see here, was brave enough uh, to uh, kill the holy cow. Uh, uh, so, uh, in in medicine, it's a taboo to touch the nerve that innervates vocal cords because that causes paralysis. Mm. So he said, well, "Let's do that," and yeah. we actually injected uh, the nerve that goes to the vocal folds. And then during the injection time, the spasticity went away, oh. and we re-injected, 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 tried left and right, left and right vocal cords. Every time the spasticity, every time the vocal cord went into temporary paralysis, the symptoms disappeared. So this was the first breaking point to say that, hey, not all problems of voice has to be seen. So mm-hmm. not everything that is read is actually bad. Mm-hmm. Not everything that appears in the vocal cords has acoustic reality. And today, one of this, this sort of uh, panaceas for everything is reflux. Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody goes on reflux medication because it causes a voice problem. And if somebody says, I don't have any reflux, then say you have a silent reflux. Mm-hmm. And some people will tell you they have seen 10,000 vocal cords and they've never seen a reflux. So there are trends, mm-hmm. and the trends need to be scientifically proven, and mm-hmm. that's where we're going. We'd w- we want evidence-based treatment, not mm-hmm. just uh, hearsay or, or by... Um, wishful thinking. Speaking of trends, would you say that the the trend for innovation that's happening in vocal healthcare is, has been happening since the Second World War more in the United States than in Europe or other parts of the world? Or where, where has been the locus of the main developments? This is a difficult question to answer because I'm both from there and from here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and it depends what you look at. Uh, we are much more uh, goal-oriented uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So the development in technology maybe uh, is of European origin, mm-hmm. but application and pragma- pragmatic issues are much more wow. here. Research, uh, research in mm-hmm. itself, specifically clinical research, uh, is more U.S. phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but there is something called the World Voice uh, consortium organization. We all cooperate, yeah. and we do these. Uh, we we do have annual meetings. And originally, there were two meetings uh, uh, in the world. Really, there was Voice Foundation meeting in New York, and then moved to Philadelphia. And we had a meeting here in San Francisco. Uh, right now, there are many other uh, of these organizations, and many countries develop right now their voice uh, c- voice consortium or their voice societies of their voice care. Uh, Units. So there's a British Voice Association. There is a Portuguese. There is a, a, mm-hmm. every country right now. Uh, sort of the industrial society uh, have have voice uh, care on a pretty high level. And is the point of these uh, centres or societies mostly to share information within the industry, or is it to be more outward facing to inform the public? Uh, Mostly within the industry, mm-hmm. outward, uh, outward facing information to public 
is fledgling. It's not really a, a, a phenomena that is uh, clear. Mm-hmm. And in actually, your program does a great job uh, for doing this awareness. And it's interesting because in the United States, statistically, uh, something like 14%, 15% of, of the population reports having voice problem once in their life at mm-hmm. least. And there is... Uh, uh, maybe five to six percent of permanent voice issues uh, in, in in the country. So American Meg- Medical Association has guidelines of what and how to or how to uh, classify uh, voice uh, problems that affect persons' work and performance. Uh, some of these guidelines are are not so realistic, but at least we're having we're starting to have these guidelines, and that's good because uh, if you have even small glitch with your voice, you would not be able to do your program. That's true. There's a fire starting in my heart Reaching a fever pitch and it's bringing me out the dark Finally I can see you crystal clear Go ahead and sell me out and I'll lay your ship back See how I'll leave with every the iconic voice of Adele with the song Rolling in the Deep. Adele made headlines a couple of years ago for her victorious recovery after vocal surgery. Her surgeon, Stephen Zeitels, is considered to be one of the great figures of vocal healthcare today. Zeitels was the subject of a long profile recently published in The New Yorker magazine. I'm chatting about the evolution of vocal healthcare with voice speech pathologist Christoph Izdebski. Christoph, what can you tell us about Zeitels' contributions to the field of vocal healthcare? Well, I happen to know him mm-hmm. quite well. He uh, comes, used to come to our meeting. We used to run, we still do this Pacific Voice Conference, and he used mm-hmm. to speak at our meeting. He's a brilliant guy mm-hmm. who has a uh, you know, vision about what and how our voice care uh, should progress. And, uh, and he runs a big clinic, mm-hmm. multidisciplinary clinic, and that's where his success is. Mm-hmm. It's not just one person saying, you're going to do this and that and that. You know, it's, it's an intelligent approach, approach in which other people participate mm-hmm. and other people make decisions. And then finally, uh, the decisions are put in, into practice uh, with uh, patients that require treatment. Mm-hmm. So that's the way to go. Voice is not one person's phenomena. Mm-hmm. One person cannot encompass this because voice is not only physical, it's, on, it's not only uh, uh, physiological, it's also psychological, mm-hmm. uh, and it's also artistic. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has many, many, many expressions, and most people have to participate. So in one of the uh, questions that I, you asked me was, you know, there's so many different voice specialists mm-hmm. that deal with voice. What's their significant roles? What do mm-hmm. they do? Everybody has a place, but the final place is actually in medicine. Mm-hmm. And the final place is to secure that the voice is not subject to some ter- terrific illness that can actually uh, kill an individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so we cannot take this trivially. We cannot say, oh, you just have a voice problem. Mm-hmm. So somebody who has a voice problem for two weeks and it doesn't go away needs medical care immediately. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Other than Steve Zeitels, who else in the working in the field today, uh, and what kind of innovations are out there that are, are really important? So uh, 
I have been lucky in my life because I had um, many of these uh, developers of the field of laryngology and voice pathology as my ex-professors. One of them is Hans von Leyden. He's still alive. He's 94 years of age, mm-hmm. and he lives in Los Angeles, and he's one of the sort of precursors and, and founders of uh, modern uh, um, voice care. In fact, he coined it the term phonosurgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not phony surgery, it's phonosurgery <laughs> because it has the surgery on a phone on voice. Another person who is of uh, is enormous significance happened to live, just retired from UC San Francisco, Herbert Dito. Mm-hmm. He is uh, inventor of probably the most used laryngoscope in the world. Uh, he created many, many surgical procedures. Uh, he and I were uh, very close friends and still are and work together uh, for many years. And um, uh, we run probably one of the m- most p- uh, successful voice clinics and labs in Western United States for many years. He's credited with uh, um, with finding uh, ways of uh, uh, getting people's voices back to normal. Uh, there are at this stage, it's almost in every state of the United States, or 50 states, there's at least one lab that is pretty well equipped and pretty uh, smart in the approach of how to deal with voice problems. There are many, many names today uh, who follow the traditions. Bob Sadloff in, in, in Philadelphia is uh, uh, sort of a new uh, Wilbur Gould, who was original f- uh, founder of this voice care for in, in the United States. Uh, Gerald Burke at UCLA right now uh, um, runs a very good uh, voice clinic and voice laboratory. So if you look at the West Coast, we have Los Angeles, we have Bay Area, uh, we have Portland, Oregon, and uh, uh, Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in the Bay Area, we have... Uh, sort of tendency to be concentrated in a city, but uh, East Bay is pretty well equipped and and capable of doing voice problems. North of Marin County, it's very tough, uh, and there's a a gap all the way way to Portland. Mm -hmm. And if you go south, uh, there's basically very little between here uh, and Stanford and then all the way to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So... uh, so this appears that these uh, voice uh, clinics are concentrated in the metropolitan areas mm-hmm. where people use voice. Mm-hmm. Um, Los Angeles, of course, has a lot of actors and singers, and so that industry requires mm-hmm. uh, good care. You have mentioned, or well, we've talked about a few different figures who've done important things in the history of vocal health. None of them are women. Oh, no, actually, there are women. There are absolutely. women. So yes, let's yes, talk yes, about yes. some of the yes. great women. Yes, absolutely. Women. That's, sorry to say that. No, no, they're great women. Good, good women, both in Europe and the United States. So uh, the best women in Europe were in East Germany. Mm-hmm. Because East Germans had this uh, uh, zest for figuring out performance physiology. They did Mm -hmm. it with sport physiology. Uh, They did it also for for voice. So uh, East German physicians, women, were great. Uh, Today... Uh, Sweden had a very prominent voice uh, physiologists uh, and uh, that were instrumental in developing um, standards and developing technology. Finland as well. Finland had great tradition in occupational health. Mm-hmm. So Ma- Anna-Maria Laukkanen in Finland, uh, Britta Hammenberg in, 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 in Sweden, uh, Mette Pedersen in Denmark, 
so Nordic countries had that uh, uh, in England. Margaret, um, uh, Margaret, I forgot them. Sorry, Margaret, mm-hmm. I forgot your name. <laughs> um, uh, she she wrote sort of fundamental book uh, on voice uh, on voice pathology that is standard teaching book in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, we have uh, Gwen Corwin in New York. We have um, uh, Gail Woodson. We have Diane Bless. I, oh, Christine Sapienza in Florida. Mm-hmm. We have plenty of uh, women. In fact, the uh, Speech and Hearing Association is dominated by women. And and uh, enormous amount of good research uh, comes out of women. In, uh, and men are sort of secondary role in, in this field. Seriously, I'm not, I'm not trying to make up my error, but that's how it is. Left-hand side! Why is it tied to another bag? Get your headgear off, man! Go! Go! Can Go. we move any slower? You don't wear headgear inside! Some of you aren't even making it past five. Go! Get off the bus! you got to move faster than This is Voicebox, and I'm Chloe Veltman. Visit voicebox-media.org for more detailed playlist information and other things that you might like to know about our project. We just heard military drill sergeants giving instructions to soldiers. Their voices must get very tired with all that shouting. Christoph, what can you tell us about the way in which people are using their voices differently today versus how they may have used them in the past and how uh, the changes in our professional and social lives are affecting the field of vocal health care? Voice production is actually uh, parasitic production of uh, on respiration because voice is not primary function of vocal cords. Primary function of vocal cords is to protect airway mm. from uh, getting things into lungs that are not supposed to be there. So mm-hmm. the only thing that goes to lungs uh, is supposed to be air. Uh, so when you expel this air through the vocal cords, they will, uh, if they come together, they will start vibrating and make sound. Many sounds can be made uh, through uh, that system without participation of the vocal cords. Mm. So uh, something called supraglottic phonation, and that's what heavy metal singers do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you know how to use voice adequately and even uh, very uh, loud uh, screaming noises like the drill sergeant sergeant, you can do pretty well Mm -hmm. aerobics teachers is very large uh, is a a population of of people who have voice problem quite Mm -hmm. often because they do move Mm -hmm. and they also talk in noise Mm -hmm. and so and they may not actually know exactly how to do this but it's very easy to correct if they use microphones they're much better Mm -hmm. So, um, so, how do we use voice today versus how we use voice before? Well, it reminds me about how birds sing. So mm-hmm. the birds sing typically when they're on a tree. And when mm-hmm. they go down, they become quiet. Mm-hmm. The only birds that chip on the, on the ground are chicken and hen. That's why we eat them. Uh, so, uh, uh, so why we sing and why we make sounds mm-hmm. is difficult, but we always make sounds. Yeah. And the grunts and things uh, like this that started us to uh, produce now melodic intonation and very nice voices, Adele or whoever you want, uh, it's, 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 it's evolution. And this mm-hmm. evolution is very crucial for social behavior and social life. You can sing and you can talk as long as you live. You don't really have to have a bad voice when, mm-hmm. you, uh, when you are very old. Uh, in December, I was in a meeting in Italy, and I was given uh, a, a topic to talk about how, can you 
can you sing when you're 100 years of age? Mm. And I have produced uh, evidence of the same singer uh, when he was 30 years of age, 50 years of age, 60 years of age, 70 years of age, 80 years of age, 100 years of age, and then he sang at 107 years of age. Mm. He still performed. Mm. So the question here is, yes, if you know how to do, how to mm. care of that instrument, you can scream, you can yell, you can do lots of things without injury, but you've got to figure out how to do it. Do you think there are more people with vocal health problems in the US today than there used to be, uh, say, 100 years ago? I definitely think so. Ah, why? Because we use voice today more than before. Huh. We could, before, you know, if we have to meet somebody across the ridge, uh, we send smoke signals. Mm -hmm. And today we scream. <laughs> or we use the phone. And the phone, the cellular phones are so difficult. So, and people talk on the phone continuously. So we have, asked, we have ability to talk more. Mm -hmm. and opportunity to talk more today than we ever did before. But, but I mean, on the other hand, people, aren't we in a post-telephone era now? Everyone's texting all the time and, and, and typing into computers and things. Well, there was a study in England, actually. They looked at little kids and the mm -hmm. development of their thumbs and representation of thumb in the brain. Mm -hmm. So the British kids has larger thumb representation because they text like this. And all that. My son eats and, uh, and thumbs, uh, you know, text under the table all the time. Uh, yes, but you cannot convey information that you really want to convey uh, by texting. Right. You know, so talking is the uh, talking is the tool of labor and tool of the future. We will talk more. Computers talk to us. We talk back to the computer. So if you go to some kind of prompter uh, uh, on a phone and you don't like this, you scream. People mm -hmm. scream at those prompters because they think they understand. No, they don't. But Siri, for example, you know, the Siri... Siri, uh, the voice on of, yeah. of uh, the iPhone. Very tolerant to voice problems. Not mm. tolerant to articulation issues, but mm. the voice problem, very tolerant. Huh, that's interesting. Are there any vocal issues that people used to have in the past that have since become less prevalent or been completely eradicated owing to changes in medicine or the lifestyles of people in the modern world? There are many examples of that, okay? Mm. So things that were bacteria-based, mm -hmm. uh, these, these problems are eradicated because pro predominantly we can take care of bacteria. Uh, trauma of the vocal cords uh, increased because before you had maybe, you know, sort of a, uh, being shot in the neck with an arrow and right now you can all have all kinds of different trauma, blood penetrating trauma, chemical trauma, ingestion of gases and all kinds of mm -hmm. stuff. Um, so it depends on how you look and what is the, uh, um, what kind of, um, how, what a perspective you look, uh, what, from what perspective you look at the voice problem. Voice overuse is definitely on a rise. There's no question mm. about it. Because teacher talk in larger classes, in very modern mm. rooms with poor acoustics. Um, uh, singers sing longer on stage. Uh, they sing in louder uh, environments. Uh, their performances are longer. When we can actually measure the length of the vocal cords uh, movement, how many times, because the vocal cords are, let's say, three millimeter wide. Mm. And if they vibrate 100 times per second, so they run three, 100 times, th times three millimeters. So if you think how long that uh, uh, those vocal cords vibrate, how many actual yards or meters they run. In opera, they can run five to six to 7,000 meters. So it's a huge amount. Mm -hmm. And if you do it incorrectly, uh, yes, you will injure your voice more than before. So mechanical injuries to the vocal cords are on the rise. 
Overuse of voice is on the rise. Mm. Smoking is on the rise. So all of this stuff, despite the fact that people smoke less, children smoke or younger mm-hmm. people smoke more. Mm-hmm. Uh, sexual transmitted uh, uh, dis- diseases are influenced. Papilloma, papilloma mm-hmm. of vocal cords is a terrible problem, terrible. Mm-hmm. We don't really know how it is uh, transmitted, but if the child is born with papilloma, the voice is affected. By the time the child is, let's say, 30, 40 years of age, may have 120, 140 surgeries. Mm-hmm. What about things in the past, though, problems that did used to exist that don't exist today, though? So, I'm not that old. I don't remember that. But um, but uh, the problems that existed before were really those problems that could not be taken by antibiotics. That's mm-hmm. pre- pre- predominantly what it oh, was. So these, these, like polio. Yes. Yes, things that were affecting human performance, human physiology, human body, mm-hmm. that could not be treated. Uh, because vocal cords is just a part of the human organ. There's nothing different between mm-hmm. vocal cords mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and uh, basically the two pieces of meat or muscle uh, hinge on the uh, cartilages and wrap in a membrane, which is like a saran wrap. And is this the area between, the, the space between saran wrap and the muscle or the meat is that uh, creates the sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the vibration is sliding of this membrane. So if you have an injury to this membrane, then that, that's, uh, your voice will be affected. But voice can be affected by frequency. It doesn't mean that all the keys on the piano are ineffective. So it's, very rarely is there a problem which every single tone in a voice is affected. Mm-hmm. There are problems like this. But typically, there will be frequency-specific. Voice could be frequency-specific. Mm-hmm. So, and if it's frequency-specific, then will be those people who use voice in these frequencies. Mm-hmm. So, that's how it looks at this moment. That's mm-hmm. all I can say. Okay, then. Well, we're approaching the end of the show, or near the end of the show, Christoph. One more question for you. What are you most excited about in terms of what lies ahead in the immediate future for the field of vocal healthcare? Of course, understanding of genetics. Mm-hmm. Of course, understanding of better technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is something called now uh, high-speed digital imaging, which actually we have this instrumentation. It allows us to measure vocal cord vibrations uh, at very high speeds. I can record vibration at two, four, five, six, eight thousand frames mm-hmm. per second. Uh, something called optical coherent tomography, which means that you can actually using light. It's not an invasive technique. You're using light. You can penetrate into the depth of the tissue, so you can mm. see what's going on under. Mm-hmm. Uh, so technology is, is extremely exciting. Another thing is awareness, uh, aesthetics of, of human behavior. Uh, this uh, means a lot, because through uh, improvement of, of behavior, we reduce uh, trauma. Mm-hmm. And that is very, very exciting. And genetics, of course, genetics will be something in the future. And personalized medicine, meaning that what's good for you may not be good for me. And so we need to uh, create and and contour and and cut treatment that it fits what you are benefiting from. Well, thank you ever so much, Christoph, for sharing these fantastic, super interesting insights with us this evening. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. It's my pleasure. Hopefully it will work for you and for the audience as well. I think so. To find out more about tonight's guest, Dr. Christoph Isdevsky, please visit the website of the Pacific Voice and Speech Foundation at pvsf.org. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel, the web editor is Nayantara Jane, and the social media manager is Elio Bucky. Rachel Hamburg is our reporter, and I'm Chloe Veltman. 
This week's episode of Voicebox is generously supported by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. May is Better Hearing and Speech Month, a reminder to take care not only of your vocal health, but also of your communication health in general. For further information, visit asha.org backslash public. Please join ASHA and dozens of other organisations and individuals in supporting Voicebox. You can make a safe and easy donation by visiting voicebox-media.org or feel free to mail us a cheque. We're a non-profit project, so all donations made to Voicebox are tax deductible. Find out more and send your questions and comments to voicebox-media.org. And please connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. If you're looking for me on Twitter, my handle name is at Chloe Veltman. A message finally for all of our Bay Area fans. Join us on May the 29th at 50 Mason Social House in downtown San Francisco for drinking songs, a night of beer and the music that goes with it. Once again, Voicebox is collaborating with Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and the Philistines Men's Vocal Ensemble for an unforgettable journey into the shared cultural history between drinking beer and singing songs. More details, including how to buy tickets to this not-to-be-missed interactive event, can be found online at our website, voicebox-media.org. I'll play us out with a performance by Sigrid Arnoldson, another student of the great singing teacher and vocal healthcare pioneer Manuel Garcia. Here's Arnoldson with the Habanera from Carmen. Have a songful week.